If you turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Thessalonians, we're beginning 2 Thessalonians today in this series of these two books back to back. So in a couple of minutes, we're going to start reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. But let's talk a little bit about the setting in this letter and what brings about the things that we're going to read through this morning and over the next two or three weeks. Not long before Paul sent, not long after Paul sent that first letter to the Thessalonians, he receives word back, probably from Timothy, about how things are going into that church. He got that letter sent to them. Someone was there with them for a little while and comes back and brings message to Paul about how things are going with this young church in the city of Thessalonica. Now, there's a lot for Paul to be glad of. There's a lot for him to still be thankful for. They're staying close to Jesus Christ. We're going to read that their faith and their love and their hope, they continue to grow. But they continue to grow, as Paul has learned, in some very difficult situations. They're staying close to Christ, but these Christians are, in fact, enduring significant persecution in the city of Thessalonica. Something that we saw maybe just quickly in the first book, their persecution as Christians comes to the forefront as we read 2 Thessalonians. So as Paul writes, he is openly thankful for them again and all that God is doing and his hope for them is that they remain strong and faithful to Jesus Christ. But he has also learned that they need some guidance on this matter of the day of the Lord. As 1 Thessalonians ended, the last section of chapter 4 into chapter 5, that became Paul's theme. What is the day of the Lord and, and how do we handle it and what does it mean? And that theme will continue and actually be magnified in 2 Thessalonians. Some of these Christians had grown worried about their lives and the move of history and what the coming of Christ really meant, and many of them are confused about how and when and why and what's going to happen. So 2 Thessalonians, a lot of ways, provides some clarity on what is admittedly a very confusing and sometimes anxiety-filled topic. But what Paul does in the end is he encourages these Christians about how to live until the day comes, how to stay close to Christ, how to endure until the day comes. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to essentially break this into three sections, and we're going to read Paul talk about these three basic ideas. And the first is this. He's going to talk about the work of God's grace. God really is at work inside of these Christians. It really is the case that their faith and their love, they're growing, and they are doing what Christians are always called to do no matter the circumstance, and that is that they are enduring in their faith. And Paul is thankful for that, and he talks about what that means. And that will become a critical theme for us as we absorb what Paul says to the church this morning, that Christians learn how to endure in Jesus Christ. The second thing Paul's going to spend some time on, and, and if you haven't read 2 Thessalonians 1 this week or recently, some of the language is going to kind of shock you and surprise you just a little bit how strong it is. The second thing that Paul's going to talk about is the work of God's justice. 
So these Christians really are suffering. Some scholars have guessed that by now there may even be martyrs among them for the cause of Christ. So they are enduring significant injustice. Not just something they see in the town next door, it is something they are experiencing. And when we experience trials and struggles and injustice, oftentimes there are a certain set of questions that rise in our minds. Does God see what is going on? Will God do anything about what is going on? We might even ask the question, is God currently doing anything about any of this? Or even does He have the power to make any of this right? Paul actually deals with all of those questions in light of the Thessalonians' persecution in our passage this morning. So the third thing that we see And it's a powerful thing that we see here, and that is that Paul prays for the work of God's power in their lives. God is, in fact, at work in their trials, making these Christians worthy of His calling in their lives. God, he says, will in fact empower them to do everything that is in their hearts to do for Him. And it turns out that God's power will bring about the glory of Jesus Christ, both through his people in his church here and now and at the day of the Lord. Maybe the theme that holds this chapter together is how the glory of Jesus Christ works even in these situations. So let's begin reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, our passage of Scripture goes like this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The first few phrases of this book sound almost exactly like the introduction to 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they write their greeting, grace to you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Silvanus, or Silas and Timothy, All three of these men are still involved with and connected to the life of the church in Thessalonica. Their hearts are still connected to how things are going on inside of this church. And as we read about the history of this church and how it unfolds, it's probably Timothy who has gone back and forth between Paul when he writes this book in the city of Corinth to the city of Thessalonica, moving these uh, books back and forth and bringing word to the Apostle Paul about how things are going inside of the church. So when Paul writes this second letter, he probably writes it within a few weeks, maybe even just a few months of the first book. And if you want to be reminded of some of the history of Paul's relationship with them, I'd encourage you to read um, Acts chapters 16, 17, and the first part of chapter 18. And this goes to a lot of Paul's journey and how the church at Thessalonica was started. But this book is written not long after the first book was written, so we don't hear a lot of change in Paul's heart toward this group of Christians. He loves them, he's drawn to them, he's still attached to them. In many ways, this is still a very personal letter between Paul and the the Thessalonican church. 
but we get a deeper glimpse into their situation, into how they are doing, and the things that they are worried about, especially with this doctrine of the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ. So we're struck again as we open this letter that Paul gives thanks. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. It's right for us to do this because what we've heard about you is that your faith is growing abundantly and the love that every one of you has for each other is increasing. Just by itself, this is just a magnificent picture of a healthy church, of people who are learning how to love each other even through difficult times. This is beautiful to see this picture of a healthy and thriving church. So it continues to grow in faith and love and hope. And Paul says, in fact, I boast about you to all of the other people of God and churches that I interact with everywhere that I go. Now, there's nothing wrong about this kind of boasting. Paul does not boast about what he has done. I love telling people how many churches I have started, so thank you, Thessalonians, for sticking to it. It's not what Paul says. He doesn't even say, I love telling people about what I did for you and the fruit that what I did bore in your life. It's not about Paul. What he boasts in is that there is a church where the power of God is at work. There's a church where people notice their faith and their love and their hope. It's entirely appropriate, right, to believe in and to boast in those kinds of things. So the news of their faith and love, it becomes a signal to an encouragement to other believers about what life in Jesus Christ can be like. So Paul is more than happy to spread the news. There really is nothing like a good example to light the way. And so he loves using the Thessalonians as that kind of example to all of these other churches he's involved with. Well, he's thankful for them. Their faith is growing. Their love is growing. He boasts about them. And this is how this introduction ends. And here's where our eyes are open to their situation. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. The Apostle Paul is especially thankful for their endurance during their trials. This is an incredibly important matter of perspective for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. If we learn how to see their situation clearly and how Paul interacts with their situation, how Paul responds to what he hears they are suffering, if we can see this clearly, it's going to help us understand our situation better. In fact, it's going to help us follow Jesus Christ more faithfully in every season of life. I find this incredibly important. Paul hears that they're going through persecutions simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ and he's excited that they're enduring, that God is still at work in their lives. Paul does not now tell them how to avoid all pain in their lives so that they can live in such a blessed way that then they can experience the blessing of God. He doesn't do that. He says, I hear you're enduring your persecutions and your trials. So he's going to pray eventually 
that God's power would be at work in their lives more and more and more. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when what God does is he grants blessing and he frees us and he gives us security and he gives us his abundance. There are times when God does that, but those are not the only times in our lives when we can experience the power and the work of God. Even through their persecution and trial, he is so thankful that they continue to endure. They were suffering persecution for naming the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to hint at them as the book moves on that there may even be more affliction coming. So what Paul does is he commends them on enduring well. Guys, the work of God in their lives, as, Paul, as, far, as far as Paul is concerned, will be seen in their endurance. Their endurance is evidence of the work and the power of of God. So we see in this passage of Scripture something that we see a lot in the New Testament if we have eyes to see it. Followers of Jesus Christ learn how to endure faithfully in every season of life. We're learning how to do this. It's not that we do it perfectly. It's not that we do it right every single time. It's that we are called to endurance. And so Christians are learning how to endure, to follow Jesus Christ in all situations. Thinking about this topic in this passage of Scripture, because it will continue as chapter 1 moves on, it reminded me of several other passages of Scripture. In fact, when we go to the end of the New Testament and we read the book about the end of all of these things as we know it, and we read the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ writes seven letters to seven different churches there in what we would call Turkey or Asia, it says in the New Testament. And in all seven of those letters, in Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 3, they have this kind of pattern to them, every one of the letters. And every one of the letters has this pattern included with it. The first time it occurs is this, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, <clears throat> he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To those of you who endure whatever it is you are faced with, that endurance will mean entrance into paradise and eternity with God. You will eat of the tree of life. And all seven of those letters in those two chapters end with, if those who have an ear, let them hear. If you conquer, if you endure, if you have victory, it depends on your translation, the word that's there. If you conquer, then... I will give. If you conquer, Christians are endurers. So even an entire book that is all about the day of the Lord, Jesus Christ tells every church that we are endurers. We learn how to conquer. We learn how to endure. That same disciple who saw and wrote the book of Revelation is the disciple John. And in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he talks about endurance like this. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Well, how do we overcome the world, right? And this is the victory that overcomes the world, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is stunning 
how many ways the enemy uses his pressure to cause Christians to deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hardcore pressure, difficult physical pressure, social pressure, peer pressure, political pressure. And yet John says, who is it that endures but the one who hangs on to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord? Guys, this endurance by the follower of Jesus Christ is active. It's not a passive thing. We do not disappear into the background or hide our faith behind the walls of the church where it's safe to sing these songs and say these kinds of things and pray for each other and we walk out of the doors of the church and all of this is hidden in here. That's not how we do it. Sometimes we just have to lash ourselves to the mast, avoid the siren song, and follow Jesus Christ. Sometimes this is just what we have to do. And he says, in fact, I'm thankful for it when I see it. I boast about it when I see it, that you are steadfast and your faith is strong and you're hanging on to your hope in Jesus Christ. Now, put yourself in in Paul's shoes for just a moment. He receives word that this group of people that he loves dearly is, in fact, suffering more and more because they are following Jesus Christ. This is going to be a frustrating and difficult thing for someone like Paul in Paul's position. So he's going to, at some point, want to start talking about, well, what's going to happen to those who persist in their persecution of the church? What's going to happen to those who persist in their persecution of those that I love? And that's actually exactly what Paul does next. He begins to talk about the justice of God. So let's begin reading in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. A lot of that stuff is not typically on the mug that you buy at the Christian bookstore or the painting that you want to stick in your hallway unless you're an especially grumpy and sarcastic individual, right? And yet, nonetheless, here's the Apostle Paul talking to a suffering church about the justice of God. And you and I get to listen in about who God is and what He is like and the call that He has made and the power of God at work and the lives of Christians who even suffer and the realization of the truth of the justice of God for all of eternity. It just has consequences. The first thing he says is, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What is it that he means when he says this is evidence? 
What is the evidence of how the justice of God works? Well, with what Paul says here, there are two things, both that they are enduring and that there are those who persecute them are evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the endurance of the saints and the persecution of the wicked. He said all of this is happening under the justice and the power of God. But even more than that, during these trials, God is at work inside of the lives of his children. We've already heard that. He's already thankful for that. And he's going to develop that theme as this moves on. This is so important. God has not abandoned them. In fact, he is actually at work bringing them closer to himself. It's important for us to hear this because oftentimes when we struggle or when we have questions that we think we cannot answer or that struggling endures, often what we want to do is begin to imagine that God has simply abandoned us. He's left us alone. He doesn't see. He doesn't care. He's not at work. And what Paul wants to say is not only has he not abandoned you, he is actually at work bringing you closer and closer to himself. If you have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and a heart to know it, he can actually be at work pulling you closer to himself, into his kingdom. This is amazing to me. The New Living Translation takes verse 5 and puts it like this. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. You and I, in our responses to difficulty in this life, it's just part of human nature, I believe, more often than not. We tend to view difficulty as the lack of God's attention or care or power. When in fact, Paul tells us that God can actually be using it to draw us near and near to Him. We like asking questions like, well, why is this happening? Can't God see this? Why doesn't God do anything? Reading what Paul says, getting as clear a perspective on their situation and how Paul responds to it, Here's a better, what I believe to be a better, more biblical understanding of this sort of thing. Guys, the world is full of sin, and some of that sin is just hatred toward God. And if God has any children here on earth, some of that hatred will be turned onto them. But God is not fooled. In fact, He is doing two things, Paul says, while this is happening. He is powerful enough to make his children more and more like him even when they suffer, and he is preparing eternal judgment for those who in the end reject him. Sin causes affliction. God causes growth and maturity, and God will bring justice. Will God do anything? Yes, he will. Is God doing something? Yes, he is. Is God powerful enough to clean all of this up in the end? Yes, he is. This is how Paul is answering their situation, their suffering, their difficulty. In fact, he tells us in verse 6 that the very act of persecuting the people of God is the assurance of judgment. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, those who do not repent and turn to Christ, this is just how Paul lays it out. But the frustration... And the confusion of 
difficulty and suffering and watching the wicked um, prevail and succeed and so forth, this is a perpetual problem inside of the human heart. In fact, I'm going to read a little bit from a psalm, Psalm chapter 73. I would encourage you, if, if this is the kind of thing that strikes you or you want to spend some time with, walk all the way through Psalm chapter 73 because Psalm 73 has sort of two halves to it. And the first half is, God, you've got to be kidding. This can't be happening. This isn't right. This is unjust. Why do the wicked prosper? Why am I, your righteous servant, suffering? And the psalm goes down and down and down into darkness until we reach this pivot point in the middle of the psalm where the psalmist says, but then I turned my eyes to you. And listen to how the psalmist processes this. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning If I had said, I will speak this, or I will speak my pain, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It is a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. How does the psalmist begin to answer their questions and their affliction. I see the justice of God and I know that it is sure. And I know that God has never let go of me. We skip toward the end of the chapter in verse 24. He goes on like this. You guide me with counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is my strength for life now, and I know that I will be with Him forever. The answer to these trials, both in the book of Psalms and with the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the church, is that our good God is all-powerful, and all of history is inevitably headed toward God in His mercy and justice. Paul even talks about, well, when will all of this be settled? In verse 7, he says this, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. God's justice will be taken care of when God decides His justice will be taken care of. On the day of the Lord, Christ will return, and that's when these things will be settled. This is important for the Christian friends. Paul says God will effect justice when he decides to, not when you and I manage to get all of this under control and then the end will come. But God in his sovereignty, in his righteousness, he decides when this moment is going to happen. Upon whom does God's justice fall? Further on in verse 8, he says this, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There simply are eternal consequences for rejecting Jesus Christ. And then what is it that will happen? Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Every human being is an eternal thing. 
And some, as Paul lists, will live separated from the presence of God, but the church of Jesus Christ will be with him in glory forever. Now, guys, this is important for us to understand our perspective on news like this. This kind of thing for us should be motivation for mission. This should be motivation for our lives as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in his patience has delayed to this morning. And so we, can, we continue to have this opportunity to be his ambassadors and to be his witnesses inside of this world. Make sure that in your heart, and I need to make sure that in my heart, when I read stuff like this, I am not motivated to hatred or see I told you so. God is judge. I am asked to be his witness. Does that make sense? God will take care of justice. God will take care of human hearts in the end of all things. You and I, Jesus says, we have received power to become his witnesses everywhere we go. Paul says we become God's ambassadors and he appeals to us, be reconciled to Jesus Christ. That's how we respond to this news. We learn who God is. We're learning what it means to endure even through trial. But then we're moved to bear witness to this world for the cause of Jesus Christ because every human soul is eternal. Paul adds this to the story of the coming of Jesus Christ in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. When Christ comes, notice this, he will be glorified in his saints. The followers of Jesus Christ become a part of his glory seen in all of creation. So God's justice includes vindication and glorification. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that God's children, Paul says, will be saved from wrath. But more than that, you and I will become part of the glory of Jesus Christ here and now and in all of eternity. Guys, again, to me, this is powerful stuff. That the church of Jesus Christ, the local body of Jesus Christ, as well as the church universal, can actually act as a magnifying glass, a clarifying spot for the glory of Jesus Christ in a world that is so dark often in so many ways. And so as Paul is working this through with this young church, this is how he finishes it. This has now happened a couple of times as he writes to the Thessalonians. He throws a prayer into the middle of what he has to say. So in verse 11, he says this, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ to this end. So because of all of this, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for God's power at work in your lives. Again, the New Living Translation, verse 11, I think says it very well. So we keep on praying for you asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call, may he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you 
to do. Remember who he says that to. A group of Christians under trial and affliction and persecution says, this is what I pray for you. Here and now, in your situation, follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what it looks like, no matter the blessing, no matter the loss, no matter the complication, no matter the stress, no matter the pain, no matter the amount of certainty you feel, no matter the amount of uncertainty that racks your life with anxiety, no matter the joy, no matter the darkness, Paul says we pray that God will empower you and make you worthy to live according to His call. Guys, you are a child of God in every circumstance of life. No matter what happens, you are always in the hand of Jesus Christ. And no matter the circumstance, this is beautiful to me, no matter the circumstance I walk through, I can actually be filled with the life and the power of Jesus Christ. I don't have to wait for the easy day. I don't have to wait for the day when everything is going so well. I am always a child of God who can be filled with the life and the power of Jesus Christ. Thinking through this reminded me of something. We do not wait for the storm to blow over to live for Jesus Christ. Our power for life is stronger than the storm. Did we get that picture, Mary, that painting? This is Rembrandt's Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. When you first see this painting, and it's actually quite a bit larger than this. This is a little bit of a zoomed-in version of this. When you first see this, all you see is destruction and chaos. The wind is blowing. The waves have the ship at 45 degrees. The ropes are fraying. The water is flowing into the boat. The disciples, some of them look like they're starting to tumble out. As you just sort of take in the first impression of this painting, all you see is chaos and potential destruction. But your eye is eventually drawn to the bottom right-hand corner of that ship, and there's several disciples around one face. And it looks like Jesus just woke up. Isn't that beautiful? This is the moment where he speaks peace to the storm. Christ speaks peace to our storm. Christ is our peace in the storm. So why do we endure as followers of Jesus Christ? Why does God give us, grant us, His power for life in every circumstance? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So that Jesus will become great. So that where He is great, He will become even greater. This God of grace and justice deserves all of the glory that all of creation and all of humanity can give. And God, Paul says, will be glorified in His people when we faithfully endure. This may be the theme that holds this chapter, maybe even this book together. The overwhelming, powerful, and beautiful glory of Jesus Christ. Paul says when He returns, He will come in blazing glory. 
The glory of Jesus will be revealed from heaven when he arrives with his angels and with his saints. Paul even says those who in the end will reject him will be separated from the glory of God, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. But he also says that Jesus Christ will be glorified in his church. And it's not just something that you and I will experience someday for all of eternity when we get there. And we will. And we will experience that. But it's something that Paul says is possible here and now. That the church of Jesus Christ can become this focal point for the glory of God. Let's pray.